calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Eliza? Yes, Willie? Uh, Eliza, you know that I know very, very little about the goings-on in the field. Yes. Yes, I do. Wellington, are you all right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Just, uh, just, just thinking. Thinking. A lot. And that concerns me. What was that case file you were reading? <clears throat> Operation Darkwater. Oh, Bloody hell! How did you get hold of that case? It was... Labelled unsolved by the director. Really? The old man has got some cheek, don't he? How so? That chap Nemo was starting trouble in the Pacific. I finished it. Case closed. I am sure you were thorough, but... Welly, I made sure nothing and no one was leaving that miserable rock. But don't you think... (sighs) Don't you think we should... Follow up? Haven't you ever wondered if you might have left something behind? Highly unlikely. I hope so. But... Worst case scenario... Yes? Set Darkwater aside. You know. Just in case. Darkest Before the Dark Water by T. Morris Summer, 15,000, 14,000, 13, 12. Rafe's eyes jumped from the altimeter to the dome above him. 
a cerulean expanse almost too brilliant to be believed as sky remained unmarred. Dear God, he thought quickly as he undid the buckles of his restraints. Underneath his feet, a cloud raced towards them. He fought to keep his balance as he began climbing up the control station in the center of their pod. Get back in your seat, man! A crewman shouted. Look at the altimeter, you git! Rafe screamed in reply, his eyes fixing on the large pair of handles above them. We are accelerating! His hands gripped the cool brass, and he pulled. Hard. He gave another yank. Nothing moved. Not even the slightest of budges. He flipped himself up, his grip tightening on the handles as he braced his feet against the dome. He was now screaming as he pulled, his eyes focusing on a new expanse revealing itself as the mist now dissipated. The Pacific was much like its heavenly counterpart, only this canvas appeared uneven and textured, even from their quickly disappearing height. Wraith heaved, and the handles remained steadfast. Over his screams, he could hear another crew member unfastening his restraints. On his fourth pull, he felt massive hands grab his sides. Sir, came a deep, booming baritone. Let me. Wraith looked at the crewman and gave a light start. It was no insult to his own manliness, he realized. This man was a giant. His cheeks and chin decorated in crests, swirls, and dots that should have made him appear intimidating, but in his dark eyes rested a calm assurance. Rafe knew him from the briefest encounters passing each other below decks, seeing him fighting on the open main deck of the Guy Fox, or on the odd occasion when his person was called for by the captain. Damned if he could remember the man's name, however. The Maori gently lowered Rafe so that he felt as if he were a babe being passed from his mother's own hands, and then hefted himself up to the handles. He gave a pull. The second time, he gave a grunt that could be heard over the buffeting from the outside world. The altimeter continued to drop. Five thousand. Four. Not today, Rafe thought as he looked past his feet and saw the ocean underneath him drawing closer and closer. Were those white caps he saw? Not today. He leapt up and wrapped his arms around the dark man's thick waist, adding his weight to the handles. Above their heads came a hard, sharp, Through the dome, the lifeboat's parachutes could be seen slowly unfurling. It was the most beautiful sight he'd seen, but now they only had seconds. Let go, Rafe insisted, releasing his Maori ally. His feet struck the deck with a loud clang. Get to your seat! He slipped the leather straps easily over his shoulders, but he had to put a bit of effort in locking the brass clap across his chest. On the sound of its click... Rafe glanced upward to the glass windows, just in time to watch the parachutes catch air and bring their wild, unhindered descent to an end. He groaned through clenched teeth as he felt himself suddenly jerked out of his seat and into the restraints. Slamming back into his seat, the air was quite knocked out of him. He took in a deep breath, then another, then another. The only sounds he could make out over the thudding in his own head were the muttered prayers of an Irishman the gasp of the other crew members, and the parachute rigging clanking in the lifeboat's housing. The four chutes overhead were domes of silk, swaying gently in their descent. Rafe looked beyond his feet through the glass floor, and his stomach lurched. An expanse of dark ocean blue reflecting sunlight stretched underneath him, the only disruption being a small landmass that grew steadily closer.
His eyes went to the altimeter. It read 2,000 feet, but then suddenly spiked upward. What in God's name? The lone female exclaimed. We've called to current. We're not landing yet. The ship lurched again, lifting him out of his chair. He examined the altimeter. They were descending again, the air currents carrying them closer to the island. We're almost down, everyone, Rafe announced. Just hold on a few more minutes. He gripped his restraints tightly and resisted the urge to hold his breath. The minutes stretched out until abruptly the air rushed out of him as the lifeboat hit the water. The shock threw him forward, sending a stab of pain through his right shoulder. The water gobbled them down for a moment, and then sunlight poured into the cabin as they broke the surface. Rafe unbuckled his restraints again and grabbed the railing in front of him, pulling himself up to the central controls of their pod. He began to unscrew various valves underneath the control station. He glanced up at the sound of another safety latch unbuckling. Rafe gave a bright smile, seeing the Maori had also made it to his seat before the parachutes had fired. A hissing noise now filled the compartment, drowning out all other sounds. Their lifeboat's wild rocking began to subside until it was nothing more than a gentle swaying. With a nod to his crewmate, Rafe looked at the controls before him, then glanced to those to his left, still not what he needed. On the third control panel, he read the odometer, nodded, and then opened the compartment underneath. His fingertips grazed the various scrolls kept here until stopping at the one marked with the number he had been whispering. He slipped it free of its holder and secured it on a plate housed with the station. When a second glass plate snapped tight over the map, this quadrant of the Pacific now had a small grid covering it. Rafe began marking with a black grease pencil where he remembered their vessel had been just before the attack. The scattered and interrupted coastline of Melanesia was his only reference. A glance at the odometer, and then Rafe retraced what should have been their trajectory. His markings ended in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You... Rafe whispered as he looked at the bobbing island through the porthole and then back to his map. Are not supposed to be there. Now, how did you manage... He made it! One of the crew, the Irishman, said, his head pressed into the cushion behind his head. He gave a guffaw and tried to look out of the porthole closest to him. God bless us, but we made it! Crimin, stand down and hold your tongue! Rafe snapped, feeling the pod lurch around him, and then once more. We are far from a point where we can celebrate. Stay in your seats. Landfall is not going to be a gentle experience. Rafe had just fastened the safety clip when he felt the lifeboat begin to lean forward, as if it were being reloaded into its escape cannon for a second firing. However, the leather harness kept him from falling. Now parallel with the waves, he could see through the portholes the darkness of the Pacific. He could observe the occasional fish or two swim up and away from the window. Behind him, bright sunlight poured in onto the Maori, who screwed his eyes shut, turning away from the glare. They pitched again, and Rafe could make out through the glass a sudden change in colors. They were drawing closer to land. He caught a glimmer black, then another. He tightened his grip on the harness. Brace for impact! Even while the restraints held him to his seat, the jolt rocked his body, causing his teeth to slam into one another. Something lifted their lifeboat up, and Rafe's eyes focused just at the moment their ship dropped. 
Through the porthole, he could make out a dark shape growing larger and larger. It shattered through the pod's thick, tempered glass, sending water in all directions. It would not take long at this rate. Not long at all. Another hard bump, and Rafe realized they were rocking side to side, no longer moving forward. He struggled with the clasp until it gave way, but his hands kept a grip on the harness as he wiggled free. Abandon ship! he called before dropping into the ankle-deep water beneath him. The sole woman in their pod managed to keep her head above the rising water. Once free, she and Rafe waded over to the Maori, who was now completely submerged. Reaching above him, Rafe yanked free a small knife from the control storage space. He passed it to her and then took the second kept there for himself. The water, dark and thick with silt, was now to their knees, its surface churning to a white foam as they cut into the man's seat harness. Rafe's arm shot back first, soon followed by the woman's. The crewman burst to the surface, gasping for air, reaching for any sort of purchase. Come on, man. Catch your breath on the beach, Rafe said, passing him to the woman. I'll be out in a moment. There were two more compartments above him. One he knew held the maps. Those were useless now. The other, from where the knives came from, held two Remington Elliott Derringers and a small case of rounds. Their compressors were glowing softly green, and each of their housings gave a sharp hiss when the pistols were removed. Both pistols and knife went into a small satchel, also kept within this space. Securing the bag, he leapt to the ladder rung over his head and started the hard climb out. A sudden burst of sunlight caused him to blink, and the air around him now smelled strongly of salt. He took in a deep breath, discerning the hint of moist vegetation on doing so, and dropped into the hard, packed sand. He combed his hair back with his fingers and took in the sights around him. A narrow beach that curved to the left. Palm trees and ferns swayed gently as a warm tropic breeze pushed through their tops. Miles and miles of the Pacific Ocean, clear skies in every direction. Land. They were on dry land. Giving the satchel a reassuring pat, Rafe joined his fellow castaways in the shade of a small grove. He plopped down into the sand and produced one of the derringers. He cracked open the housing and began loading in the rounds. Weapons. A crewman, staying with what appeared to be black powder, barked. What gives you the right? Apart from my rank on the fox, Rafe bit back. We're not on the fox, now are we? He retorted. Rafe cocked an eyebrow, and he flicked the three-barrel pistol shut. And I knew where they were. The gruff Englishman thrust out a hand. Fine, then. As the ranking gunner here, I deserves a weapon. There was a hint of logic there. Your name, Airman? Colin Dervish, he said, tipping his head back as he added, Gunner's mate. Rafe nodded and looked to the other crewman beside Dervish. Jonathan Whitestone. Well done. His eyes jumped to the Maori. He almost looked embarrassed as he introduced himself. Maka Montgomery. Airman. Yes, Maka. Rafe now recalled. Bloody giant of a man. His thought was interrupted by Colin's snort. Rafe heard him mutter, Bloody wog. The insult made their heads turn to him slowly, but it was Rafe that wiped the smirk off Dervish's face. Remind yourself, Gunner, that this wog 
saved your hide moments ago. He held his stare on Dervish for a moment longer, and looked to the young airman next to Maka. The young man cleared his throat. <clears throat> Miles Havenshill, airman. That left the girl. Athea Galway, sir. Engineer. Rafe's brow furrowed. First mate. She shook her head, her eyes shifting to the sand underfoot. Second. Her eyes flicked back up. Apprentice. Underneath smudges of grease and grime, large sapphire eyes stared back at him. Her face, stained as it was, could not seem to mar her sweetness, a delightful beauty that believed in tomorrows before her and dreams to become. Again, it was Dervish who broke the silence. I should have taken number eight when I had the chance. With a look over all five of them, Rafe nodded and looked back at the lifeboat. Right then. Our next order- Just a moment, mate, Colin said, closing the distance between Rafe and himself by another step. We still don't have your name, now do we? And seeing as you're wanting to take charge, I'd like to have an idea of what gives you the right. I am. Rafe started, paused, and then chuckled as he corrected himself with, <laughs> was your ship's navigator, Lieutenant Raphael Stringfellow Rafton. He then motioned to the others, as I am the ranking officer amongst us, and the one holding the gun. I welcome you to my first command, and your first order. Secure the lifeboat. No one moved. So, it was to be like that, was it? Gentlemen, lady, that lifeboat may very well be our shelter for the night. We will want to dry out the chutes so we can use them as hammocks or additional shade. There may also be some stores and equipment we can salvage, but we will lose all of that if the tide carries her out to sea. Maka and Althea both nodded, but the others looked apprehensive. Colin is right, Rafe said, giving the Remington in his grasp a visual assessment. Three rounds. If needed, he could even out his chances. Only if needed. We are no longer on the Fox. It is just this rock and the six of us. So, he said, pulling himself to his feet, I suggest we make the most of the time and secure the pod. But Master Rafton, Miles asked, shouldn't we set up a signal fire to call for help? To whom, Edmund? To the Guy Fox. Considering the condition of her bridge before I was ordered off it, there will be no reunion. And considering our profession of choice, I doubt if Her Majesty would welcome us back into her loving embrace, unless, of course, it is in irons. There has to be someone we can call for a pickup, Colin said, motioning to the lifeboat. It's not as if we can't offer our services. Would you listen to the man? Althea snapped, her nerves still sounding frayed after their escape from the ship. We have few options here. Colin spun to glare at Althea. Watch your turn with me, bitch. I never let no one speak to me in that manner, and I will we not- We are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. She spat, cutting him off. He was on her before anyone could step in between them. His slap knocked her off her feet. I told you to keep your tongue still. He warned, still advancing on her as she scrambled across the shifting sand. And may I remind you- The sand exploded between the fallen girl and the gunner. They both looked back at Rafe, who was now studying the smoke coming out of the top barrel. May I remind you, Dervish, that I have a gun? He asked. He waited, 
watching Colin step away from Althea and take a seat next to Jonathan. Jonathan glanced at him and then scooted a few inches away from him. Our engineer is quite right. We have few options before us. Our priority is to secure the lifeboat. Rafe stood, slipped the gun back into his satchel, and then dusted himself free of sand. Once that is done, we start our first reconnaissance. Beaching the lifeboat was hardly the effort that Rafe envisioned it to be, once all of the crew pitched in their equal efforts. The inflatables were still full, giving the large metal pod an easier surface to drag across the wet sand. On reaching the drier, uneven sand, the crew deflated the air sacs and made quick work of the chutes, stringing them between palm trees. Rafe walked closer to the breaking waves and turned back to the shore to look at what remained of the Guy Fox. A crew of six, counting himself, a battered lifeboat with its identifying number 9 now visible from where he stood, and several parachutes billowing gently behind the pod when the steady Pacific breeze ran along their shore. Rafe looked back into the satchel that he had kept secure on his person. He managed to find a small telescope and a compass within the stores. There were also, secure in the pod, rations that would last them for two days, maybe three. From there, it would be living off the land. Hopefully they would be able to do so. He was about to return to their modest encampment when he saw it rising over the now visible peak. He produced the telescope from his satchel and followed the smoke trail. Master Navigator. It was the one calling himself Whitestone. He, too, noted the plume of smoke. Do you think the volcano may still be active? Rafe gave a long, low sigh and shook his head. The smoke appears too dark to be ash. It's black. Something wooden is making that. A distress signal, you think? asked another, walking up to them both. It was the first intelligent thing Colin had said since their introduction. Can't say for certain till we investigate. Rafe collapsed the telescope and turned to Colin. Shall we away? Whitestone gave him a customary salute and handed back to shore. Colin snorted. We still have an issue. A weapon? Ah, yes, of course. Rafe reached into the satchel and produced the sole knife within. Turning the blade handle first to Colin... He gave a slight nod to him. It's the only knife I have. Rape then motioned back to shore. Off to you, Gunner. Colin held the weapon tightly, and with a final, long look at Rafe, he began walking back to the lifeboat. He followed the smoke for another moment. Whatever was causing it was still burning. An island that doesn't exist, a thin spire of man-made smoke, and survivors whose loyalty to him wasn't quite certain. Rafe's optimism was still eluding him, even when he reached his crewmates. Now then, he began producing the Remington and refreshing the earlier spent round. As we are outlaws, we have nothing to lose. So let us meet this island's tenants, yes? I will take the lead. He produced the second pistol from the satchel and tossed it to Maka. Colin spluttered for a moment, but fell silent as Rafe said, Maka, cover our backs.
The island's vegetation, at least on this side of the mountain, proved easily managed. Rafe had seen far heavier, less hospitable terrain in his days aboard the Guy Fox. He silently assessed that the island had remained uncharted for a reason. It was a remote spit of sand, vegetation, and volcanic rock, serving well for marooning an uncooperative crew member, but not much good beyond that. The island was dominated by the volcano at its heart, and with a final check to make certain his threadbare crew had proper protection against the jagged rock, he led the ascent to its summit. The volcano's incline was not too steep, so their climb remained steady. Rafe paused, just shy of what appeared to be the lip. He motioned, palm down, for everyone to stay low. Silently, slowly, the six outlaws crept up to the edge of the rock's mouth. What they found there not only told the story of the island itself, but of how this island had remained invisible to air and seamen alike. The volcano appeared to have suffered a massive eruption ages ago, and now the western face was gone and opened the volcano's belly to the Pacific. This formed a lagoon that ended at the source of the fire. This, too, came as a surprise, as the source of the fire was in the heart of the volcano, but not the volcano itself. Master Rafton, Miles began, but his voice trailed off. No, Rafe said, pulling out the telescope from the satchel. You are not suffering delusions. That's a bloody port, Jonathan muttered. He then wrapped Rafe's shoulder. And look, embedded in the rock. Now that is an impressive gunport, would you not agree, Whitestone? The spyglass brought Rafe closer to it. The battery, it appeared, was unmanned. So it seems someone wanted to keep this place a secret. He ran the scope along the docks and then collapsed it, switching it for the Remington. And it looks as if this port is secret no longer. I didn't see any movement, but I would hardly say this means we let our guards down. Colin blinked and then pointed to the battle-weary docks. We're going down there? I'm sorry, did you have other appointments to keep today? Rafe asked. Mr. Rafton, Miles spoke. What I think the gunner's mate is asking is what we are all concerned about here. And to play Miss Galway's parrot, we have few options in front of us. Rafe looked to each of them and then back to the port. When night falls, the temperature will drop like a stone. At least there, we will find some sort of shelter from the elements. If we are fortunate, we will find additional weapons as well. If we find weapons, we also find food. Agreed. Colin's expression did not change. In fact, Rafe noted it hadn't altered since leaving the beach. I'm following you, Master Rafton, came Galway's lone female's voice. And I, sir, Maka added. Jonathan looked over the docks and then considered the navigator. Something feels a bit off about this, but I follow you, Master Rafton. Four sets of eyes turned to Miles Havenshill. He gave the lightest of shrugs. I really don't fancy the idea of sleeping in the lifeboat. Oh, fuck all, Colin swore. Stay here if you like, but we would fare better with you in our company. Colin looked at them all, spat, and then gave a reluctant nod. Rafe checked the Remington's indicators. All green. Everyone stay close. They had not traversed the mouth far before coming across an intentional opening in the volcano's lip. Before them was a trail, a well-used one at that, leading to steps carved in rock. 
Rafe stopped the crew with a single finger pressed to his lips, and then slowly, with the Remington held at the ready, he crept out into the open, looking up and back the trail. A tightness grew in his chest, but he fought the urge to breathe. He took another glance behind him, then ahead. When his gun dropped, the rest of the crew joined him. All it took was a sharp gesture up the path, and they understood his intention. Maka followed only a few paces behind as Rafe led them down into the volcano. The soft crackle of fire reached their ears only a few steps later. Their path underfoot switched from rock to wooden decking to rock again. They found their first corpse at the final platform before the docks. Rafe rolled him over, looking for signs of a bullet hole. He felt a tap on his shoulder. Jonathan motioned to his neck and then parted his fists with a tiny twisting motion. A broken neck. That meant close quarters combat. Rafe looked at them all and pointed two fingers to his eyes. Everyone nodded and they moved on. The dock seemed big enough to handle two, possibly three, small seafaring vessels, but that sort of traffic should have meant a good-sized complement of deckhands present. There was no one to put out the fires, no one to defend whatever could be left there. Rafe looked around him, taking count of the few dead that littered the wood, and then powered down the Remington before placing it back in the bag. Maka furrowed his brow, keeping his own pistol raised. What is it, Rafton? Colin whispered tersely. This area is secure. Are you daft, man? He barked. How can you be sure? Wraith pursed his lips together as he motioned to the isolated fires dotting the docks. Where are the fire crews to put out these flames? Well, I'm sure they would soon snuff themselves out. Wouldn't you think there would be a fire brigade of some sort wanting to assure that? He gave a nod to the Maori, who lowered his weapon. Stand down, Maka. We're safe. Spare the compressor. If you don't mind, Master Rafton, Maka splayed his fingers around the gun's handle. I'll keep it powered up. This was a battle not worth fighting at this point. As you wish, Airman. Rafe popped his head through open doorway after open doorway as they continued along the length of the pier. All these posts had been cleared. Nothing or no one remained. The last door, however, made the navigator pause. He waited for the crew to gather before speaking. Looks like this is the way in. What, down those stairs? Miles asked. Still think his port is secure, grumbled Colin. If I were not a cautious man, Gunner, Rafe said with a smirk, then I would have taken the weapon from Maka. He is still armed and watching our backs. He opened the door a bit wider and found a row of lanterns still hanging on their hooks. Rafe grabbed a pair and lit them both with a piece of debris from the docks. With a flame now inside each lantern, Rafe adjusted the light and then passed one to Maka. The acrid scent of smoke was heavier here, and where the staircase diverged was where Rafe and his crew found it harder to breathe, at least from the stairwell off to the right. The passage to their left, however, offered better air. Rafe motioned with the light, and deeper they all descended into the rock. Sparks popped and fell from above their heads as lights fought to remain functioning. Rafe glanced back to them as the steps continued downward into haze and shadow. He then looked up at one of the flickering lights overhead, and wondered if his crew also asked the same questions buzzing about his own brain. Electricity? 
down in the depths of a dead volcano? Where in God's name had Rafe and his crewmates landed? Their steps ended at a room that looked as if it had served, once upon a time, as a ready room. Some of its tables had been overturned. Parchments and what appeared to be logbooks or journals littered the floor. In the far corner of the ready room was a large barrel. Its contents, charred remains of more books, spilled across the wood underfoot. Master Navigator, Althea spoke, gently taking his arm. Something is trying to keep these lights running. If these lights are still drawing power, that means a generator... Before you lose me in the language of a clanketon, are you saying you can get these lights to work? A power relay should be close by. Rafe motioned for the Maori. Maka, go with her. Let's see if we can get some lights here. Aye, sir. With a quick wink to Althea, he watched the two of them leave through a connected passageway, their light visible for only a moment before the shadows devoured it. The blow came from behind, not hard enough to knock him out, but hard enough to disorient him. It gave the attacker ample time to fish out the Remington from his satchel. Rafe fought to keep hold on his consciousness, blinking almost in time with the flickering lights above him. He heard the gun arming as he took in a deep breath. The crew, Rafe did admit as he pushed back the pain, had followed him far longer than he had anticipated. He had convinced himself the first true play for command would have occurred at the volcano's mouth. Now that you're armed, Rafe winced, turning to face his attacker. What exactly is your plan, Ammon? Miles gripped the Remington with both hands, his eyes darting back to where Althea and Maka disappeared. We find the communications tower here and call for help. If in that don't, we find ourselves a boat and a map. Wraith gave a soft laugh, shaking his head. <laughs> Just like that. This is a port! It has got to have boats! It has got to have maps! So just you, Gunnar Dervish, and Welder Whitestone, then, taking a stand against the Pacific. Our chances are better than staying here! And those were the last words of Airman Havenshill. The Remington faltered in his hand, but Colin managed to catch it before it fell completely. He removed the dagger from the young man's neck and gave him a hard shove against the wall. Miles fumbled at the fatal neck wound for a moment, but couldn't do anything to slow the loss of blood. When the lights flickered up to full illumination, he saw a table within reach. He grabbed its corner and went to pull himself back on his feet, but then fell back to where he had landed. Colin gave the pistol a final look and then presented it to Rafe, handle first. Rafe considered the gesture and tipped his head to one side. Master Navigator, I will not have a bloody airman speak on my behalf unless he knows it. I do not take to that lightly. And yet, Rafe began, still looking between the Remington and Colin. You will take orders from me? Well, sir, you are the ranking officer here, yes? I may not like your orders, but if I mutinied every time I disagree with an officer, I would have been tossed off the Guy Fawkes before today, probably without a lifeboat. Rafe took the pistol and gave Colin a nod. Glad we have an understanding. Of sorts, Master Navigator. The pistol returned to Rafe's satchel just as Maka and Althea reappeared in the doorway. They paused at seeing Colin and Jonathan so close to Rafe, but Rafe kept Maka's pistol down with a very subtle shake of his head. On finding Miles sprawled across the floor, 
the pool of blood slowly spreading around him, they looked to Rafe, silently demanding an answer. You missed the excitement, Rafe quipped. Actually, sir, Althea said, giving Maka a glance before motioning to an overturned table. We all missed the excitement. Maka had just righted the table when Althea placed with a resounding thud the array of dynamite on top of it. Rafe and the other two men jumped back on seeing the massive bomb, but Althea motioned for them to take a closer look. Note the detonator, gentlemen, she said, pointing to the central box nested in the cradle of explosives. One panel had been removed, revealing a collection of wires and gears. There did not appear to be anything truly telling about the mechanism until Rafe could just make out, etched on the central vial of dark glass, a single word. The writing was in English. Althea continued, as if she were holding a class lecture. The device holds a liquid that, on contact with a steady current of electricity, becomes volatile, particularly with dynamite. I've heard of this stuff. It's called fluid fuse, quickly becoming the ordinance of choice in Her Majesty's government. She looked each man in the eye before adding, This device hails from Old Blighty. Someone from England? Out here? Rafe looked around him and scoffed. <laughs> Wherever that is. The reason it did not go off, Master Afton, is the wiring. Althea pointed to the loose wires reaching up from what would have been the top of the detonator. You see here, corrosion. It can sometimes happen if wiring is exposed to the elements, and there appears to be some kind of salt contamination here. From what I gather, these wires were meant to pull steady current from the lights, bringing the fluid fuse to its flashpoint. That is why the lights were flickering around us, Maka spoke. The corrosion prevented a strong enough connection. So, no boom? Rafe asked. Both nodded in reply. Do you think there's another one of these somewhere? If there were, I think it contributed to whatever happened here, Althea stated. A bomb like this could easily render a port useless. Two of them? Effective. Indulgent, actually. Two bombs like this could easily send a seaport to the bottom of the lagoon. An interesting notion. Rafe looked over the bomb again and considered the mind behind such a construct. But let's take into account something else. This is not your average, everyday seaport. This is some sort of facility built within a network of caves inside a dead volcano, and the island is uncharted. He looked back at the stairwell from where they had disappeared to, and asked, Althea, Maka, what else is down there? We stopped once we saw this device, sir, Maka replied. Miss Galway set to fixing the lights, which she did, and then we returned with this, thinking you would want to know about it. Well, now that I do, I do think we need to find out exactly what a loyal servant of Her Majesty wanted so desperately to hide. Miss Galway, would you mind carrying the light this time? Now numbering five, the castaways descended deeper into the caverns, passing the spot where Althea and Maka had restored lighting in the operations room. They could discern a constant dripping, and the air around them was no longer tinged with the smell of smoke and fire something cleaner. Seawater. The steps ended at wooden planks, and now they could hear water lapping against both wood and stone. The lantern cast light only a few feet in front of them, the void around them revealing nothing except that this cave felt big. Very big. 
No telling exactly how. Master Navigator? Althea spoke, breaking the heavy silence around them. If you please. She offered him their lantern. She positioned Rafe's arm to extend to the closest rock wall, and their sole light managed to reveal a power switch. Whether it had been the shock of the earlier speculated bomb, or if someone had been in a hurry, the lone switch had been removed from its contacts. Althea took hold of its handle and looked back to Rafe. Gentlemen, before Miss Galway satisfies her engineer's curiosity, I would like to offer that reconnecting those leads could very well set off explosives, condemning us to a fiery death followed by tons of rock and earth smothering us. Jonathan, quiet for some time now, asked, Or? Or? Rafe sighed. She may turn the lights on. Fuck all, Colin said. As you sit on a beach, what options have we got? Rafe nodded. Althea closed her eyes, muttered what Rafe could only assume was a prayer, and brought the level down to the connectors. The leads popped and crackled lightly on contact, and then the lights around them slowly grew brighter and brighter. This grotto appeared to be a forge of some sort as Jonathan gave a chuckle on what he recognized as tools of his trade. Rafe caught a glimpse at the man's eyes and surmised that Jonathan Whitestone would be hard-pressed to leave here. These were advanced tools of the trade, and they were now his. Well, at least one of us has found paradise here, Rafe said. Althea finally took a breath and looked at Rafe with a bright smile. But the smile soon faded as her eyes darted behind him. The smile did not surrender to any sort of dread, but more pure awe. Rafe then noticed that both Maka and Colin, also looking past him, wore similar expressions. Rafe turned around, took a single step back, and then marveled at what the grotto's shadow had once hidden. Gentlemen, Miss Galway, hearing his own voice was also a surprise. I do believe another option has presented itself. T. Morris began his writing career with his 2002 historical epic fantasy, Moravi, The Chronicles of Rafe and Ascana. In 2005, T. took Moravi into the then-unknown podosphere, making his novel the first book, Podcast, in its entirety. That experience led to the founding of Podiobooks.com and collaborating with Evo Terra and Chuck Tomasi on Podcasting for Dummies and its follow-up, expert podcasting practices for dummies. He won acclaim and accolades for his cross-genre fantasy detective Billy Bob Badding's Mysteries, the podcast of The Case of the Singing Sword winning him the 2008 Parsec Award for Best Audio Drama. Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, marks T's return to fiction and it can be heard on both Tales from the Archives and his latest podcast project, The Shared Desk. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, 
Order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at TheGearHeart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.